This episode is brought to you by State Farm. If you're a small business owner, you know that it isn't just your business, it's your life. And whatever your business might be, you want someone who understands. That's why you might want to check out State Farm Small Business Insurance. Why? Because State Farm agents are small business owners too, living and working in your community. That means they know what it takes to help you personalize your policies for your small business needs. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. Talk to your local agent today. Wow, that guy means business. Just an amazing player. No, not him, the sports photographer behind him. Uh, what? He has a business bank account with QuickBooks Money, where he earns 5% annual percentage yield, so he's scoring big on and off the field. You might even say he's the MVB. MVB? Be? The most valuable business. Making your money work harder. That's how you business differently. Intuit QuickBooks. Banking services provided by Green Dot Bank. Member FDIC. Only funds and envelopes are in APY. APY can change at any time. Hi, I'm Kara Swisher, editor-at-large of Recode. You may know me as the author of a self-help book that teaches you how to overcome your addiction to buying self-help books. But in my spare time, I talk tech, and you're listening to Recode Decode from the Vox Media Podcast Network. Today in the red chair is Marianne Williamson, a spiritual teacher and best-selling author who has written books such as A Return to Love and A Woman's Worth. But this year, she has become much more famous as one of the Democrats running for president of the United States. Marianne, welcome to Recode Decode. How would you describe yourself? I identify myself as a woman, as a mother, but uh, in terms of this campaign, I think the fact that I've written about inspirational uh, subjects, Mm -hmm. non-denominational faith leader. Right, right. um, Activist. Activist. Okay, great. Uh, And I want to talk to you about a lot of things. I I told you earlier I was going to talk more sort of focused on discourse and everything else. But, you know, if I was a a typical Washington political reporter, I'd ask you why you're still in the race. I'd ask you all kinds of things. I don't want to talk about that, but I want to know why you're still in the race now. What is your— Maybe because I'm not in the third debate? Yeah, exactly. I I think the role of a uh, political institution such as a political party is to facilitate the process of democracy, not dictate the process of democracy. Mm -hmm. I'm someone who thinks it's actually very healthy for the Democratic Party and for our democracy Mm -hmm. that so many people have been running. Right. And if— Me too. If you are a uh, non-establishment candidate like myself, it takes people time Mm -hmm. to understand understand what you say, who you are, particularly since there are so many forces seeking to obstruct that. Sure, absolutely. And my experience of the voters is that they're just starting to Pay deeply reflect on this. This is the most significant election, not just of our lifetime, one of the most significant elections in American history. Mm-hmm. And who, for those of us who do not support the agenda of the president, for those of us who think that the idea of his getting a second term is nothing short of chilling— Mm-hmm. The decision of who would be best to run against him is one of the deepest, most important decisions we will ever make. This should not be rushed. Mm-hmm. The political system should be supporting people going as deep into their thinking about this to find our real wisdom and our real psychological perspicacity. There's there's so much involved here. It's policies. It's psychology. It's how people perceive don't rush this. Don't I feel strongly this should not be rushed. This should not be shut down. Well, it's part of the rushing because of the worry that to have an electable candidate, you know, the idea mm-hmm. that we have to get down and so we're not, the, the, the Democrats aren't arguing with each other. I find, not, I agree with you. I, we're we're not arguing with right. each other. Right. That's, I find that a bogus and even illogical claim. Mm-hmm. You know, somebody says you can't give people too many choices. You can't give children too many choices. <laughs> The voters are not children. That's part of the conventional political establishment corruption. They treat people like they're children. Mm -hmm. People are adults. They can they can hold two thoughts at the same time and think mm-hmm. that we're not out there fighting with each other. That's mm-hmm. not what's going on here. Right. And so I believe that that excuse is. is so what what are you running for now? I don't want to know why you're for, not. I don't want to know why you're not getting out or anything like that. I don't care if you want to. You can. I agree with you. I think there should be more discourse. I think there should be more debate. I think things should be slowed down a hundred percent. And I don't mind a lot of people. Everyone always says there's twenty. Mm-hmm. I'm like, so what? That's great. Good. It's good. good. It's for healthy. Us. It's yeah. called democracy. But but what I want to know is what you're trying to do now. Given your your state where you are now, you have been higher than a lot of the candidates, a lot of those long term candidates, people who have been running forever. What is your goal right now in the race? I'm running for president. I got that part. I understand I, that part. And I think there's a real problem with a system that puts the word "long shot" mm-hmm. before your name every time you're even mentioned. Mm-hmm. 
this way of affirming, of course, you could never win, this way of affirming she's a long shot. Right. And it has an effect. You were talking about, about social mm-hmm. media. It has an effect on people's thinking, although I find it ironic that Republicans didn't care what the RNC said. Mm-hmm. They mm-hmm. wanted Trump, so they right. voted for Trump. Right. How weird that we should be the party where there's that almost like point. less free thinking. You know, I was in an interesting meeting with a lot of, uh, I, was, I was at a dinner in Washington with a lot of political reporters, and I don't, I'm not a political reporter, and they were saying how Trump couldn't win. Like, oh, this is ridiculous, he's a circus, this and that. And I was like, here I am, a lesbian from San Francisco. I'm like, he's somewhat appealing to me in a weird way, and which is disturbing to me. Secondly, none of you have watched The Apprentice. He's very popular. Thirdly, what are you going to do to stop them? And it was really interesting because a lot of them said the party will stop them, the, the Republicans will stop them. And I'm like, who? Like, who does that? Is there like a is there like a gun? Is there like a thing they stop? Like, w- what can they do to stop? And it was a really interesting thing because it never occurred to them they couldn't stop. Like, they said the party would stop, the, the establishment would stop. And it didn't seem like that was a smart idea. And unfortunately, the mindset doesn't seem to be much different this time. So how do you operate in that capacity? Because you get, like, you're covered by regular political reporters mostly. I mean, you're in that group and you're in that coverage zone. I don't think the media is a monolith. Mm-hmm. There are some who just toe the line with whatever the corporate media is saying to a, to a frightening degree, given the lack of journalistic ethics that that involves sometimes. Mm-hmm. People will just repeat a story, repeat a stereotype, repeat a mischaracterization, just because clearly it'll, it'll get, it's clickbait. Mm-hmm. I find that terrifying. Mm-hmm. But on the other hand, I've met some very smart, deep-thinking media, reporters, et cetera, who are on the ground. They see what's going on. And many have told me on the left and the, on the right about my candidacy, there's something going on with you that the polls are not reporting, the mm-hmm. polls are not reflecting. There are many people who support my candidacy who've never even voted in a primary before. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. There are millions of people, you know, who will be voting for the first time this year because they weren't even born in the 20th century. Yeah, my son. Yeah, so there's so much more. Just like there was so much rage going on last time that the conventional political establishment did not register, there's so much goodness and decency and hunger for something more heartfelt going on this time mm-hmm. than the conventional we'll talk political about that a establishment bit. I mean, is th- this is one of the messages you're, you're thinking. You know, I, I know everyone's talking about the Taffy piece, which I thought was lovely, actually, in the Times. I, I love Taffy Ackner. I think she's one of the—she's just so smart in lots of ways. And one of the things that she had that I thought was super interesting um, is that—I'm I, I, going to paraphrase it because I can't—where where is the thing—was the idea that people are talking about not being—I don't have it right here. Here it is. I didn't understand why if only—the only complaint I ever heard was that there was so much hate, why love was so hard to swallow. That you're that this is a time where a lot of the candidates are talking about too much hate, and we've got to do something about it. Your message is almost fun, one of the fundamental messages about love, and and, and it was interesting is why does that so made fun of like that a concept? So talk a little bit about that. Nobody doubts the political effectiveness of hate. Mm-hmm. Nobody doubts uh, how much damage racists and bigots and homophobes and anti-Semites and xenophobes and Islamophobes can do. When you take all that feeling, all that uh, psychological and emotional force and you Mm -hmm. wrap it up and you Mm -hmm. make it a resonant field and you give it a political form, nobody doubts the political efficacy that can derive from that. Why would we doubt the political efficacy that can derive from enough of us getting together, committed to conscience and mercy and justice? Well, answer that question, why? Why would people doubt it? Because they do. It's only because of the cynicism of the times in which we live. There is absolutely no logic to it. If you look at the two brightest lights of the uh, political lights of the 20th century, they were Mahatma Gandhi and Martin Luther King, both of whom achieved extraordinary political success, both on the notion of a spirit within us. Love, as King said, Gandhi was the first person in human history to take the ethic of love and lift it beyond personal interaction and turn it into a broad-scale social force for good. Gandhi said that the love that heals personal relationships can heal political and economic and social relationships as well. I think there's a lot of you know, it's, as I said, I think it's quoted in that article, and I have a, I have respect for David Brooks, but if he says it, it's considered profound. Mm-hmm. If I say it, it's considered New Age something to mock. Yeah, yeah. Uh, Mar- you know, you could take any uh, open up, uh, open up some speeches of Martin right. Luther King sometime. Mm-hmm. This has less to do with entertaining the seriousness of love, and mm-hmm. more to do, I believe, with entertaining the seriousness of love when it is spoken by me, mm-hmm. because of people who, for their own political agendas 
find it more convenient to peripheralize my candidacy. Yeah, wackadoo was an interesting wackadoo. Yeah, wackadoo. exactly. And this com- calling me wackadoo, someone calling me wackadoo who supported with great passion the Iraq war. Mm-hmm. What? That was sober leadership? That was wackadoo. Thank you. That <laughs> was beyond wackadoo. No, but it's interesting because he does articulate those. He's very typical of that, I think. Um, he's not in particular different. Is that- and he writes many articles that I have great respect for. Don't right, about, about Fiat. Like, it's but- just that what is this? So what is it? What do you think it well, is? Well, it, it, it's partly about being a woman. It's mm-hmm. partly about being a non from a non—it's not that it's non-traditional because I think my spirituality in many ways is very traditional, actually. Mm-hmm. My, uh, my religious and spiritual beliefs are more traditional than people seem to think, mm-hmm. but it's non-contextualized within the establishment right. denomination, even though that itself is mainstream America today. The unchurched is the largest growing denomination. Mm-hmm. You know, this is what I find so interesting about uh, conventional politics. Mm-hmm. My conversation is not weird. They're weird. <laughs> I'm living in America in, in 2019. Mm-hmm. This is America today. Mm-hmm. The conventional political establishment with its overly externalized mechanistic perspective is stuck somewhere in 1985. Mm-hmm. In, in 2019, this is how we talk. Right. If you were sitting down with the people in your business and about your radio show, I'll bet you that you would not just talk about the externals, but people might talk about how it feels around here, mm-hmm. how, mm-hmm. how, you know, what the sort of the forces are, like how I feel emotionally when you said this or that. We have an integrative approach to life now. No one that I know thinks that we change things deeply by only talking about what's going on on the outside. Mm -hmm. So the perspective that dominates our traditional conventional political system, it's increasingly diminishing. It's not not the way people look at the rest of life. Mm -hmm. So why should it be the way we talk about politics? I think actually Trump represents the opposite side of that because he does represent the id of sort of the ugly of a lot of people. When people talk, it's interesting because when people talk about Trump, he's so unusual. I'm like, I don't think he's unusual at all. I think he's articulating. Well, I think quite I think a lot about a America. It's there. sort of a mirror, you know what I mean? Rather than he's so unusual. I, I always find that he's not unusual in any way. But what have you learned then for running as, a, I guess, a non-politician? Or I've learned that the system is even more corrupt than I feared, but people are even more wonderful than I hoped. All right, explain that. The American people are not the problem here. I think we're very good, decent people, not better than other people, Mm -hmm. but I think the average American, I mean, I travel, I've traveled so extensively for 35 years. We're a very decent people. I find the American, uh, the average American wants to be good, wants to do good by other people, wants to feel that everybody can have a fair shot, has a conscience, wants to feel that they're in right relationship, character matters, integrity matters. Mm -hmm. The problem, as I see it, is that over the last few decades, we've stopped having that conversation regarding the public domain. Mm -hmm. So we'll ask, if I'm in relationship with you, I'll ask, well, am I doing right by you? But I need to also be asking, are we doing right by Yemen? Mm -hmm. (laughs) Right? We've stopped asking, well, is that tax code really doing right by the majority of people? Are we doing right by the planet? You know, it can't be great if we're not good. Mm-hmm. So that, uh, I don't remember what the original question was. Where were we? <laughs> we were talking about what you've learned as a non-politician. Oh, yeah, so I think people are, are fine. And if you look at the polls, if you look at issue after issue, we're a left-of-center country. Our beliefs about things on a policy level are not the problem. Our consciousness is not the problem. The problem is the divergence the critical and critically dangerous divergence between the consciousness or the will of the American people and the way our government operates. And that's Mm -hmm. because our government does more to advocate for short-term profits for huge multinational corporate entities Mm -hmm. than it does to advocate for the safety and the health and the well-being of the American people. So one of the things, let's get into that idea, Paul. I I was going to talk about it a lot because I obviously write about tech quite a bit. when you're talking about the future, Paul, you're talking about the future of civil discourse then. Like, how do we conduct civil discourse? Um, you've been a—one you, of your books, I think you were talking a lot about the Founding Fathers, how they discoursed, and they actually warned about a lot of this mm-hmm. many times because they themselves had had this issue. Talk a little bit about the civil discourse right now, and then I want to get into sort of what the impact of, of tech has on it because that's been a big topic for— Well, unfortunately, our um, the level of our political discourse obviously has greatly declined, mm-hmm. and all— 
also, unfortunately, I do believe, and I think you do as well, that's uh, unfortunately, social media has had a lot to do with this. Mm -hmm. Although one of the things I find interesting is how different the personality of Facebook is than the personality of Twitter, Mm -hmm. than the personality of Instagram. Explain, go through those. Uh, It's just fascinating to me. Give me your take. Uh, Twitter is just mean. (laughs) It's mean. Sometimes it's funny. Yeah, but I see the really mean stuff heaped. Mm-hmm. is what well, I can only speak from my experience. Right. You would have right. much more vast. Yeah. Um, Facebook, what I find in my own experience of Facebook, I have a shot at you're wrong, Marianne, and I'll tell you why. Mm-hmm. Not I hate you, stop, get out now. Right, you know? which is over at Twitter. Yeah, and, and on Facebook, do you have a chance at some conversation? And Instagram, it's like everybody wants to be happy <laughs> and nice. Yeah, yeah. I don't know what that is. It's very yeah. rare in Instagram right. that, that you get some really mean, horrible thing, isn't it? Whatever. Yeah, yeah. It's interesting. Which do you use? What do you— ha- Well, I have to use all three, mm-hmm. but I have found recently with Twitter, don't even try, because mm-hmm. you're—that you, I'm, I'm really changing my view of Twitter. It's, it's unfortunate because mm-hmm. I used to have a different experience of it. But what now, was your old experience versus your new experience? When you were using it for your books or to give out some thoughts? Yeah, but, you know— Look, I'm running for president now, mm-hmm. so, uh, I mean, I, I don't know why it would be any different, but mm-hmm. uh, before, I was followed by people who probably liked me. Right, right, yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> you know, and now I'm followed by a lot of people who are there because they don't like me. Right, and so and they want to so, comment yeah, on you. of course, and yeah. shut you down. And, what, do you, what, what do you think Imagine needs to be done about this? Because, my, you know, my viewpoints are pretty clear. It's amplified, weaponized discourse. It's, it's amplified civility. Uh, it's incivility, essentially. And it, it's created a situation where you can only, which is why someone like Donald Trump thrives on a, on a platform like this. It's really, it's very reductive. It's really fast. Sometimes it can be very funny and pithy and interesting, but for the most part, it really does favor fear and anger. And, it makes and you it, know, you, the statistics: seventeen. You get much more clicks if you're meaner. You're it, 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 it's it's architected that way. Well, each and every one of us has to take responsibility for this. Mm-hmm. It's a time for integrative healing of our society as well as our is our health, where you have to address this on every level. Some is level of policy, and some is the level of our own personal consciousness. Mm-hmm. And I see on the left as well as on the right. Mm-hmm this willingness to shut people down. This is democracy. If somebody doesn't agree with you, that doesn't mean they should shut up. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I'm sorry. Well, you talk about anger is the white sugar of activism. Well, yes. Because anger is something that, again, is very effective online. Yes, but I also believe that there is righteous outrage, mm-hmm. righteous moral outrage. And I think there's a lot of righteous moral outrage, for instance, about kidnapping children, separating children from their parents, mm-hmm. child detention centers, um, shutting down asylum, uh, uh, rolling back methane mm-hmm. uh, uh, regulations, gutting the uh, the Clean Water Act, cu- gutting the Clean Air Act, uh, getting out of the the nuclear the Iran nuclear deal. I mean, there are many things which changing we ha- the weather. Go ahead. Yeah, there there are many things which a righteous person is filled with rage about, but there is a moral outrage. My point about anger as an as a as a mode of activism or inspiration for activism, it's white sugar in that it gives you an immediate high. You have an immediate adrenaline rush, mm-hmm. but it doesn't nourish you over time. When you're talking about the Trump forces, mm-hmm. You're talking about something bigger than just defeating Donald Trump in 2020. Because if all we do is defeat him, they'll be back in 22, they'll be back in 24. This is going to take time. It's not just defeating Trump electorally. We've got a big historic haul mm-hmm. on our hands. And we all have to be in it for the long haul. And it's a marathon. It's not a sprint. And that's what I mean by if it's just your anger, you'll you'll burn out from mm-hmm. that. And I think that that's also something that age gives me, a sense of um, these. we're not going to win every battle. We're not going to win every little thing. Settle in. Settle in because mm-hmm. this is going to be a long. So, so the nourishment of rather genuine nourishment, more like healthy food, has a sense of history, a sense of narrative, and a sense of the commitment necessary over time, an emotional capacity to withstand the disappointments that are inevitable, knowing that we're going for the long-term success. It takes a deeper emotional and psychological foundation to actually wage a revolution. We're here with Marianne Williamson, one of the 2020 candidates for the Democratic nomination for U.S. president. We're going to take a quick break now. We'll be back after this. This episode is brought to you by State Farm. You've heard it before. 
Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. But it's more than just a tagline. Because State Farm agents are small business owners themselves who live and work in your community. And if you're in the market for small business insurance, who better to work with than an agent who understands what it takes? State Farm agents can help you create a personalized insurance plan that fits your small business needs and budget. Talk to your local State Farm agent today about small business insurance. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. Wow, that guy means business. Just an amazing player. No, not him, the sports photographer behind him. Uh, what? He has a business bank account with QuickBooks Money, where he earns 5% annual percentage yield, so he's scoring big on and off the field. You might even say he's the MVB. MVB? The most valuable business. Making your money work harder. That's how you business differently. Intuit QuickBooks. Banking services provided by Green Dot Bank. Member FDIC. Only funds and envelopes are in APY. APY can change at any time. So in doing that, these media, new media forms do create that, though. You can't, I know you're saying we should be responsible ourselves, but a lot of it is addictive. A lot of it is hard to resist. It is everywhere. It is all around us. And that's why we have to take responsibility. So what does that mean? There's a lot of candidates that are now uh, thinking about breaking up these companies. Obviously, the state's attorney generals talked about that yesterday, about the power of these platforms. Um, Do you believe that's a big problem as a candidate? Well, yeah, but this is not going to fix that. So, yes, I believe that they should be broken up. Yes, Mm -hmm. I believe that they're monopolistic. Yes, I believe they have too much power. But that of itself is not going to fix the other issue that you mentioned, that they're addictive, that they become such an ubiquitous part of our lives. Mm -hmm. When I was a little girl, my father used to drive around in a car and he'd put on the back and lipstick, read a book, help stamp out TV. Mm -hmm. You know, my father used to always talk about how important it was to read. And I, and you know, Blaise Pascal said, every problem in the world emanates from man's inability to sit quietly in a room alone. Mm-hmm. People are not thinking deeply today. Mm-hmm. Nobody has any impulse control. So my mother would say, count to 10 before you say it. Too many of us, myself included, it's too easy to send that text, mm-hmm. too easy to send that tweet. We need, this is why meditation is important, why reflection is important, why yoga is important, why prayer is important, whatever it is that brings your nervous system into some hard harmony with a, a the level of depth out of which wisdom arises. The first thought you have is not necessarily your wisest thoughts. We're also reactive. And that's where the reductive quality that you were talking about comes from. And then unfortunately, the media, which should be helping us, which should be facilitating a, a more intelligent view, too often they're going after the clickbait because that's where they see their success lying. And each individual has to take responsibility for this. That's but how do you then stop it, Mary? Because, you know, you, you, these these are, these are architected this way. This is That's how right. it is architected. And so it's like saying we should be this way, but the building is saying otherwise. And you kind of have to live in the, the what building. What is saying otherwise? The building that they've built. I, yeah. I use the term architecture because I think it's it's architected for virality. I think it's architected for engagement and it's architected for speed. And all those things create chaos in a lot of ways. We also, though, are a society that's become, unfortunately and necessarily so, pretty sophisticated about addiction. Mm-hmm. And sometimes you just have to say no. More and more people, I mean, they're even having like vacations. They used to advertise, right. come on this vacation, right. we have Wi-Fi. Now, come on this vacation, no Wi-Fi. no Wi-Fi. I mean, people... Really intelligent people are recognizing. I mean, I remember one night I found myself waking up in the middle of the night to check my email. I thought something's wrong here. Mm-hmm. Something's wrong here and all the dopamine. All so, we- so as a presidential candidate, I'm going to talk policy. What would you, when you say, I believe in breakup, I believe in, can you be more specific? What do you, th- what would you, like Elizabeth Warren had some various, who has a million plans and and th- policies. What Which ones do you think are critical to deal with the tech industry and its power? Well, first of all, uh, you know, we used to actually have a sense of what uh, monopolies meant and why uh, anti-monopoly laws were important. Just on the level of monopoly. Mm-hmm. Just on the level of monopoly. You know, I see that Tulsi Gabbard has brought, I think, a $50 million lawsuit, I think, against Google. Mm-hmm. Uh, that after she was Googled after one of the debates and they shut down her account. No, no, no. They should not. Nobody should have that power. Mm-hmm. There is too much power. But once again, I don't think that. So I think that uh, straight just looking at it from the perspective of no company. I mean, how many 
Mark Zuckerbergs might there be out there? Mm-hmm. How many Jeff Bezoses might there be out there who are not getting a chance to, you know, if you have a tree that's too big, then everything growing underneath it doesn't get to grow to its size. That's mm-hmm. at, actually anti-competition. That's mm-hmm. actually anti-free market. Right. I mean, so you would like to see antitrust action yeah, absolutely. against which companies? I don't know specifically which companies, right. but whenever I read articles about, about, about any of them, I think, yeah, the direction we're moving in is good. Mm-hmm. Because I believe that as long as we have a system as we have now, and we've been veering there for the last 40 years, where companies, any corporation, is given not just governmental sanction, but even social sanction Mm -hmm. for believing that its stockholder value should be given precedence over any other ethical, moral, or democratic concern for people, democracy, or planet, then we have a problem well, it's been forever. It's just recently the business round. Well, I think the last 40 years it's it's become yeah. something. Yeah, well, Milton Friedman. Of, uh, that's right. Although, interestingly enough, uh, a fact I think not everybody realizes, Milton Friedman himself mm-hmm. argued that in order for any of this to be safe, we should have a universal basic income. Right, right. Talk about that. Talk about that. That's I talked to Andrew Yang about that. What do you think of that proposal? I think he's right. So why is that? I think we have a tsunami coming at us. Meaning? In the form of automation. You have states where trucking is the single largest industry. So what's a trucker supposed to do? So you're going to have these driverless trucks. What are they supposed to do? I mean, this bogus silliness, we talk about job retraining. The Mm -hmm. statistics argue that you can retrain someone, but what good is that going to do if there is no job on the other end of their retraining? You know, you, you go to a Rite Aid. Mm-hmm. And you notice there aren't that many people at the counter anymore. Right. Right. Checkers. Well, where is that person going? Can they go to CVS? No, because CVS is also automating. Mm-hmm. And one of the things you get from reading Andrew's book, which mm-hmm. I assume you did. Yes. You read that book. And one of the things that I got from reading that book that I had not deeply considered before is how many white-collar professions that think, oh, I'm safe from automation. Right. Right. No, you're not, guys. No, you're not. No, you're no, you're not. not. Mm-hmm. And I think Andrew is absolutely correct. We have to plan for that that tsunami that's coming at us now. Mm-hmm. And what would you do in that regard? What do you I do? think he's right about the universal basic income. Mm-hmm. That everybody gets that much and has an ability to be yes, creative. It yes. takes the pressure off. Well, it takes the pr- and that's all it does, of right. course. But it takes that edge off, and that edge is very important. Mm-hmm. What I want is a massive infusion of economic hope and opportunity into the life of the average American. Mm-hmm. I want to repeal the 2017 tax cut. 83 cents of every dollar went to the top earners and corporations, um, put back in the middle class tax cut. And let's be very clear. There is no evidence that that tax cut's ever even going to pay for itself, much mm-hmm. less actually stimulate the economy. Mm-hmm. We need to stop those corporate subsidies, like $26 billion last year alone to the oil and gas. We need to, the U.S. government needs to be able to negotiate with Big Pharma to lower drug prices. We need to look at our military spending. Every dollar that the military says they need for legitimate security, they should get. But we have what some people would argue is up to $300 billion above that Mm -hmm. that has to do more with short-term profit maximization of defense contractors than with legitimate security needs. And I also agree with Elizabeth Warren about the 3% uh, tax on the assets of of billionaires and 2% on $50 or more. And I think it's Relevant to note how many billionaires and multi-multi-millionaires agree with that. Mm -hmm. No socioeconomic group in this country has a monopoly on values. Mm -hmm. And I don't think that the average person who has created wealth in this country wants to feel that they're doing that at the expense of other people getting a shot at it. Right, right. Probably not. But but speaking of the richest people in the world, they happen to live in Silicon Valley. I think the top 10 people, seven of them are tech people. How do they receive you? Have you spent any time out in Silicon Valley? I'm going actually in a few days. It's going to be my first real trip. What are you doing? Well, I'm I'm meeting a couple of people whose names I don't want to mention, but uh, it'll be interesting. Yeah. What what did you imagine? Oh, but I did have, wait a minute, I take that back. I had a meeting in San Francisco mm-hmm. a couple of weeks ago mm-hmm. with some big tech people. Right. And and I find I find the same thing there that I found at a meet and greet in the Hamptons the other day, mm-hmm. which is— Now, the Hamptons is fancy. 
So you're fancy. But, you know, yeah. Listen, somebody's in. Okay, now let you you know as well as I I'm do. I'm guessing they you are know fans. as well as I yeah, do. You need to go it's just because in San Francisco, just the fact you have a hoodie and jeans on. Oh, I know they're just okay. As rich. No, they're it's, both fancy. They're, uh, they're both, both fancy. fancy. Let's not kid ourselves. No, no. Okay, oh, oh, we, I, we got good, over yeah. that illusion yeah, yeah, a long yeah, time yeah, ago. Yeah. Just because you you, oh, no, you dress fancy. that way, you must be one of us. Okay, so that what I got in both places is that when you say, "Come on, guys." This is not capitalism. This is a virulent strain of capitalism. Mm-hmm. This has got to stop. What do I get? Yeah, 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 you're right. I know. You're right. Mm-hmm. I know. And when you have people like Jeremy Grantham and you have people like Ray Dalio and you have the business roundtable the other day, I think these guys know. Listen, it won't be Bernie, Elizabeth, or Marianne that's going to storm those Bastilles. If they don't course correct, the it's going to be millions and millions of young people coming yep. up. Right. And they're going to storm those Bastilles because they're saying, what's global capitalism ever done for me? Right. What am I supposed to be scared of in socialism, the free health care or the free college? Right. So they're not stupid. And also they're not bad people. They're jerks everywhere and they're noble people everywhere. Mm -hmm. And I believe it's an American conversation where we realize we have so strayed and that that, uh, capitalism itself must reclaim some level of ethical core or right. chaos. So what are you going to say to the people, the tech people you meet, the same? What, uh, what I've message? been saying and what I'm saying to you, mm-hmm. and I feel heard. Mm-hmm. Because they, cause they, the message that you're saying is... Yes, they because would. there is no amount of money mm-hmm. that can protect any of us or our children from what will happen in this country if total chaos erupts. Mm-hmm. And a large part of uh, avoiding that scenario is riding the ship economically. When you have 1% of Americans owning more wealth than the bottom 90%, when you have the level of wealth inequality that we have, when you have the lack of middle class, this is unsustainable. Mm-hmm. Now, not every person who is rich is so smart, mm-hmm. but I would say most of them, a lot of intelligence was included in creating all that wealth. Mm-hmm. You don't have to be super intelligent to mm-hmm. get, yeah, this is unsustainable. Right. And I believe that most people um, would like to write that ship. And so that's, how- that's, that goes back to the original question you asked me. We're talking about the political, how can we give political form to our conscience, mm-hmm. to our social conscience? And that's, that's what, uh, so you hit on a topic, all, income inequality, to... which I think is critically important. Mm-hmm. I do, because I, I agree with you. I think there's a whole pitchfork concept that I think wealthy people, especially in Silicon Valley, get. And at one point I was at a dinner party and I said, do you want to figure out how to solve this or do you want to armor plate your Teslas? And which one do you want? Because that's your choice. It's so and, it's not, and I, they laughed and I said, no, I, I mean, you know, I'm they're being... Kind of, you're, they should not be laughing because No, it's but true. I was being a little bit, I was trying to make a point, was that the vast amounts of wealth you have is so beyond, like a hundred, like Jeff Bezos, $164 billion. Mark and no federal income taxes. Not a lot of income taxes these are paying. And so what would be your proposal for, you know, utilizing these very wealthy people to get to income equality? What was What would be your message to try to, besides they know it's coming, what what is the way to best get to income equality or better income equality? Well, all of the economic policies that I mentioned to you before, mm-hmm. everything all the way from repealing the tax cut to all the way to the 3% on billionaires, 2% on 50 million and more, all the things that I mentioned to you. You're going to do those things that I mentioned, we're going to have some cash on hand. Mm-hmm. And we need to make that immediate, immediate infusion. We mm-hmm. don't have time to waste here. We need an immediate infusion of economic hope and opportunity in the form of universal health care in the form of removing those co- that college loan debt. That's the biggest mm-hmm. e- inc- uh, economic stimulus we could have in the form of making uh, state colleges and community colleges tuition-free. I believe that money does not come from job creation on the part of a bunch of corporate aristocrats. Mm-hmm. I believe money comes from people living their God-given potential, mm-hmm. the creativity and the productivity that is Infinite and it is un, it, it's unlimited so potential. Do you believe everyone can't? You know, I, just, I had a discussion with Andrew Yang about this. It, the, he was talking about people needing to be more entrepreneurial, but I don't believe everyone can be entrepreneurial. Well, do, do you it, believe that? I believe it all happens in the first ten years of life, mm-hmm. and I believe that if you really want to see the entrepreneurial spirit of the American people, go into any kindergarten mm-hmm. in any neighborhood in this country, right, and you will see how unbelievably. 
um, generative uh, uh, little children are. Well, there's always one kid eating clay, but go ahead. Yeah, okay, I'm teasing you. Well, sometimes a kid eating clay, look at <laughs> Einstein when he just stared at the clock. Yeah, that's true. Um, I, I think that we are only beginning to grasp mm-hmm. what neuroelasticity means, what cognitive retention and elasticity means. We're only beginning to grasp. Science is only beginning to understand. If you want to look at the fuel that would take this economy into the most blazing abundance in the next 25 and 50 years, mm-hmm. it lies in the brain. It doesn't lie in the sun. It doesn't lie in the wind. It doesn't lie in the ground. It lies in the human brain, particularly 10 years old and younger. That's why I want a massive realignment of investment in the direction of America's children. I want to... Talk about your department of children. Yes. Well, we have a much bigger problem than simply... Uh, education. Do we mm-hmm. need more educational funding? Absolutely. Do we need to pay children, uh, teachers more? Absolutely. Do we need to get rid of high-stakes testing? Absolutely. But we have millions of American children who are traumatized before preschool. When people talk about universal preschool, we have so much that starts before preschool. It's all about early childhood. We have a relatively high rate of, of maternal mortality. We have 13 million hungry children in America. We have millions of American children who go to school every day asking the teacher if maybe he or she has something to eat. We have millions of American children who go to school in classrooms where there's not even enough uh, school supplies to adequately teach a child to read. And if a child cannot learn to read by eight, the chances of high school graduation are drastically diminished, Mm -hmm. and the chances of incarceration are drastically increased. We have millions of American children who live in what's called America's domestic war zones, Mm -hmm. who psychologists say are experiencing a level of PTSD that is no less severe than the PTSD of a returning veteran from Afghanistan or or, um, Iraq. We need community wraparound services. We need far more help in terms of child nutrition uh, and health. We need far more uh, services for families. We need to recognize as a society that in the richest country in the world, to withhold education from a child is a passive form of oppression. So these things must be addressed. We have simply normalized the despair of these children. So in aid work, there is the difference. There are two terms, screaming emergency and silent emergency. So the children at the border are screaming emergency. Mm -hmm. And when you look at how Americans react, Homestead, where I've been and so forth, how horrified Americans are, when we see it, we do care. Mm -hmm. But the way the system operates is keep things going, to keep people happy, and whatever would arouse their conscience, make sure it's on the other side of town or the other side of the world. So one of the things that my campaign is doing and what I believe a leader should do and what I believe a president should do is not only shine the light on but articulate a solution for problems of people whose pain and suffering is going unnoticed because the conventional political system isn't even talking about it because these children aren't old enough to vote, so they're not a constituency. They're not old enough to work, so they have no financial leverage. This is how deep the moral corruption of our current system goes. So these are enormous systemic problems. These are to change, you have to sort of change the entire way this country operates in a lot of ways. And getting just to childhood education. When you say that, bad bad policy created all this and good policy can fix it. So when you, just on the the narrow top of the education part, one of the pushes has been by tech people is like, well, they need to do more STEM so then they can have jobs. And I'm like, you're just feeding them into it. Absolutely. You know what I mean? That's why there's a conversation STEAM, not STEM now. Right. So so, so it's a really interesting thing because I'm not against girls doing math and I'm not against the idea that more kids should should have mathematical. And and you do look at countries like China or India or any others who are pushing their people very hard into that, into those areas. And it's important that we that our math facilities has declined so dramatically. But at the same time, how would you have when you stem that steam, which means you add arts into it, add, add arts into it? Well, Presumably. even the countries you mentioned, those kids mm-hmm. are also playing Beethoven symphonies by the time they're ten. Right. So, what? How do you do you that? have how do, more? Brain power. Because you do have to link it with jobs. I mean, I think the only way to sell to a lot of people to spend money on it, even though the right thing to do doesn't always happen, but that you link it to the idea that this is where the future is going. But even what you just said, mm-hmm. 
it's insidious paternalism mm-hmm. because you yourself were talking earlier about entrepreneurial. Mm-hmm. So if you're just looking at how to feed people into so they can get right. jobs, mm-hmm. then you have one perspective. If you, you know, the way I look at it is the average citizen is saying, give me health care, give me a good education, give me a fair shot, and I'll create my own damn career. Mm-hmm. It's not just about providing jobs. That's a, ultimately a very paternalistic notion, right. a well-intended however well-intended, sometimes, Mm -hmm. sometimes not, uh, paternalistic notion. We should be helping people become all that they can be. That's where wealth comes from, including entrepreneurialism. Mm -hmm. So whether it's entrepreneurial or it's non-entrepreneurial, still, if if you have a job that's non-entrepreneurial, you'll make more money and your company will make more money if you're happy Mm -hmm. at work. You're a happy employer. You're a happy manager. You're a happy employee. So that's part of... You know, the profundity of the pursuit of happiness is that where people are happy, they are more productive. And one of the things that comes from that productivity is money. Right. So do you consider yourself an entrepreneur? Yeah. Yes, in terms How of— so? How so? Well, in terms of my, my books as an mm-hmm. author, I think it's an entrepreneurial Because you changed pursuit. your career. You were correct. An entrepreneur sees an opportunity and then takes advantage of it in a lot of ways. Sees. Well, that's what writing a book is. That's yeah. what the kind of lecture careers and seminars and mm-hmm. online classes, mm-hmm. all of that. Which obviously. started off rather small for you, right? Beyond right. small. It right. wasn't even a career niche. I, I didn't have any ambition— for what I came ultimately to do because that career niche didn't even so talk exist. Talk about that. But because, even that's right. only in America. How right. cool is that? Right. You know, so even that is an example. Can you talk about that journey? Because it's really interesting to me. I was reading about that you started, you were doing a bunch of other things and then came upon this book. And talk about that. What the, I, I think flashes of inspiration are really interesting to me is when that happened for you. Well, I was interested in issues of philosophy and higher mind and spirituality and religion and all of that. East, West, exoteric, esoteric. It was always just since mm-hmm. I was a little girl. But there was no professional route that was attractive to me because the only professional routes that at that point exhibited themselves were you could be an academic, like I could get a PhD in comparative religion and teach comparative religion. Mm-hmm. I was like, mm, no, it doesn't feel right. Or you could be a clergy. Mm-hmm. My mother used to say, "We'll send you to rabbinical school." It's like, <laughs> Is that no, how she said it? that doesn't. She did. <laughs> that didn't feel right either. So when I first started lecturing on a course in miracles, mm-hmm. I had no clue and no ambition because there wasn't a career in that. Mm-hmm. The idea of of a kind of professional wise woman or mm-hmm. even the professional intellectual, which you have much more of in, in European sure countries. But we don't have that tradition. Mm-hmm. And it certainly wasn't anything that I understood at that point. So I was just doing what I loved to do, and which, hello, do what you love. Yeah. And I was just, and I had, and I was, a, for the first two years of my lecturing, I was doing temporary secretarial work in Los Angeles. Mm-hmm. And my parents used to say, when is this going to be more? But, you know, I was still in my 20s. Mm-hmm. So by the time this did turn into something I could make a living from, just which just happened, I was in my, you know, 31, 32. So I wasn't really, it didn't turn out to be late, you know. I was just doing what you do in your 20s, trying to, quote, unquote, find yourself. And so when I started lecturing, you know, I think it there was a $3 fee to come in. I was mm-hmm. uh, working at some place called the Philosophical Research Society. And then, uh, unfortunately, the AIDS crisis uh, blew up, particularly mm-hmm. in Los Angeles. And so in a very real so way, about that gay men in L.A. gave me my career. Mm-hmm. And then more and more people came. And then I'm lecturing more and more. And all the AIDS stuff was, there was no m- money associated with that. And when I started organizations, of course, those were nonprofit. But out of that grew an interest in my writing a book. And then Oprah had me on. Mm-hmm. Um, and then life unfolded the way it Do unfolded. Do you think people understand to take advantage? A lot of people wouldn't necessarily. I mean, I'm trying to get to the sort of what is the entrepreneurial spirit is that you see and you see something and you feel it. You see a, an opportunity or you see a thing in need of disruption. Well, first of all, I think that that's the human tendency is to grow. You know, in the Talmud, in the Jewish Book of Wisdom, it says, over every blade of grass, there is an angel bent over whispering, grow, mm-hmm. grow, grow. You know, you could the egg and the sperm are entrepreneurial. <laughs> <laughs> you know? I mean, any time... Life seeks to promote itself. Life seeks to further itself. That's all entrepreneurial is, except just within an economic context. But it's the human spirit which wants to do more, grow big, come up with new ideas. Uh That's life. That's how nature operates. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. 
diversification, true, yeah, that's you know, true. growth. So, so when you uh, did these books, you, you started to do them. You you talked a little bit in the book about how you cha- how you decided to um, be, run for president. It was just you saw Trump on TV and more like, that's enough. We've had enough of this. No, it wasn't like that. I do think that I, like millions of other people, and certainly everybody I know, mm-hmm. have watched with increasing horror. Mm-hmm. I don't think for any of us, life is the same. Trump's president, that changes right. everything. Right, but not everybody ran for president. That's what I'm no, saying. but I think that most— That requires a certain, like— Yeah, but I think most—it's not about the form— I'm sure your show is different. I'm sure your work is different. Yeah. I, I mean, everybody. So it's not about the form of it. It's like, oh, nothing matters as much as this right now. Mm-hmm. I think I'm not alone or unique. Right. And I think we all ask, how can my skill set and what I've learned and what I've experienced, you know, when people say you've had no experience, I think my 35 years is exactly what gives me the experience mm-hmm. and the qualifications to be not only the one who could defeat him, but the one who has a lot to say about navigating these very turbulent times. We're going to take another break now. We'll be back after this with Marianne Williamson, one of the 2020 candidates for Democratic nomination for U.S. president, and also a well-known author of numerous books, including A Return to Love. Okay, we're going to talk about uh, the, the electability issue in a minute. But Trump this week, Trump told a crowd in North Carolina that Democrats aren't big believers in religion. What do you think that means, and what's the difference between religion and spirit? Well, first of all, what it means— You talked about where America is. (laughs) That's why I should be the candidate, (laughs) (laughs) is what it means is that I'm the best candidate, because he is saying crazy stuff like that, right? right? All right, so So, explain that. So that's number one. And number two, the difference between religion and spirituality— by the way, look who's talking, that right. man, like Mr. Religion, right? right. Uh, it's unbelievable. Well, that happens a lot. Uh, the, the whole lo- love each other part seems to have been left out. The difference between religion and spirituality is religion often entails dogma and doctrine and institutional uh, prescription, whereas spirituality is simply a path of the heart. Mm. There's no dogma. There's no doctrine to we really should try to love each other and not judge each other and give each other a break and uh, forgive you and have some mercy and own it if I've made a mistake and I'm sorry and yeah, and I forgive you and okay, and let's let's assume the best about each other. Mm-hmm. It's unfiltered. There's, we, don't, we, don't need, we don't need an obstruction to that. Mm-hmm. We might need an instruction manual. That's what books are for. Mm-hmm. And also that's at the core of all the great religious spiritual teachings. They guide us to that place, but they aren't that place. This is that place. Mm -hmm. The separation of church and state in this country is a very enlightened and extremely important uh, part of our constitutional freedoms. Mm -hmm. It is the freedom to believe as you wish and if you wish. So religious freedom is also very important in this country because it protects the non-believer as well as the variety of believers. So what separation of church and state means is no minister, priest, rabbi, mufti, monk is going to walk into the to, to the, the hall of Congress, rip up a bill, or put another one down, like think the Ayatollah, mm-hmm. right? That's not going to happen here. It also means you could have a church, a synagogue, a mosque, an AA meeting, a Course in Miracles meeting, or a young atheist meeting, and no policeman's going to come in and say, break it up. Right. Extremely important. But it's also important to remember that the founders, by doing that, were not seeking to suppress the religious or uh, spiritual conversation. They were seeking to liberate it. They were seeking to protect it. So there's nothing about separation of church and state, which means we shouldn't be talking about morals, ethics, or the truth of the heart. Mm -hmm. Now, traditionally in this country, the left focused on issues of public morality and the right focused on issues of private morality. But over the last few decades, in a way that's very different from when I was growing up, because during the Vietnam War, for instance, the Barrican Brothers, William Sloan Coffin, when I was growing up, there was a vital religious left. Mm -hmm. And except for the black churches where um, progressive politics and and the church have never separated, Mm -hmm. there has been too much of a disengagement, a separation between, I believe, between religious voices and political voices. And 
Not that people don't care. You know, I always say Republicans don't walk their talk, but Democrats don't talk their walk. It's not like we don't have values. We're the ones with the more egalitarian policies. But this aversion over the last few decades to languaging that, mm-hmm. and I think that that has been to the well, political the detriment have been a of big the Trump left. supporters. But that's kind of my point. Yeah. Where are the religious voices on the left? Mm-hmm. And what I have found in in my own experience over the last few weeks is how much mockery um, you can get. You get um, a lot of it. You and I, Andrew Yang do. It's really in different ways. Well, That's, duh, why do you think that is? Well, why do you yeah. think that Well, is? of course we know why it is, because there's an insider's club. Mm-hmm. I call it the political media industrial complex. <laughs> I mean, it's, it's really shocking when you think about what this means, someone being an outsider. This is America. Mm-hmm. You're in a career. Is there an outsider, an insider? You get to have a radio show if you want to have a yeah, radio show. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know what I mean? You you got an audience. You did what you did. That nobody's saying you're not—that's the way it works in the private sector, and that's the way to work in politics as well. Well, it certainly has changed in journalism in that you used to have to work for a big publication. Well, that influence. has to do with the corporatization but of everything. But now you don't, necessarily. And talent outs, right. and talent should out in politics as so, well. So talk about that, because, what, you know, you're now getting the, you know, these kind controversies recently around you around, I I, I know what you're saying. You're talking about the influence of big pharma and the the way they have sort of opiated our whole country, which I think there's been a lot of writing and a lot of investigations now Should not be considered too weird to point that out. Exactly. So, but you, it was really interesting when I was watching, the minute you did well uh, in the second debate, was it? Um, A lot of the stuff came out about anti-vax, about you don't wanting people to medicate themselves. Um, can you address that? Because it was really interesting what I saw, and I was watching it because a little bit was, uh, you know, happened to Tulsi Gabbard too, or it happened to Kamala Harris too. Um, a lot of it was botting. I was I was it thinking was bo- bots around you. It was really interesting. It was actual uh, real anger combined with bots. It was really interesting, and it's very typical. You're not unusual for that. But what do you t- talk about that? What happened there from your perspective? It looked relatively organized because you got interesting. To people like you, you did. You didn't as good do a good job in the first debate as they perceived in the second. Talk about that. I was the most Google person in, in on my debate night. Every state except for Montana, which I find so funny because <laughs> what they didn't know who their governor was. I just yeah. think that's so funny. Yeah. Um, and clearly, it started three days later. It was clearly well designed, well strategized, clear talking points, anti-vax, anti-medicine, which is preposterous. I'm Jewish. I go to the doctor. <laughs> Anti-science, preposterous. Even anti-vax. I never said anything anti-vax. Mm-hmm. The conversation I uh, spoke into, and I think I made a sloppy comment, but the comment I made had to do with the question of mandatory, mm-hmm. which is of exemptions. It's a it's a nuanced conversation that I think intelligent people are having. Mm-hmm. Uh, then there was what I'm dangerous, I'm crazy, and I'm a grifter. Mm-hmm. The talking points could not have been more clear. So my own personal feeling is that after the second debate, somebody so, must have done an internal poll and. Uh, I obviously upset somebody. So, you, so one of the issues around the anti-vax is you said it should. We had to discuss the issues of mandatory, which people took to mean you were a vaccine. Yeah, which is not an anti-vax statement at all. Vaccines have saved lives. Mm-hmm. I mean, hello, look, the smallpox, polio. Mm-hmm. We all know that. Um, we're living at a time where there's a complicated conversation there. Mm-hmm. And you were talking before about reductionism mm-hmm. and how how unable people are to have a nuanced conversation. But so, I've never said anything anti-vax. And, and the same thing around AIDS and, and medication. Oh, well, around AIDS and medication, it is beyond preposterous. First of all, when I first worked with AIDS patients, there was no medicine. That is true. There wasn't any. And then, you know, my sister around that same time had breast cancer and then died of it. If anybody had said she shouldn't take her medicine, she got this because she didn't love or pray enough and mm-hmm. she could love or pray it away, I would have throttled them. Mm-hmm. That is not me. Mm-hmm. It never has been me. Mm-hmm. Nobody can find a word I've ever spoken or ever written. That's what I mean. This is a political dirty trick. Mm-hmm. This has nothing so to do with who I am or anything. I think I've one of the things you're saying is praying and love and meditation is an important part of it. Of course, Correct. that's what. Once again, going back to hello, huh. this is 2019. Right. What is this? Mm-hmm. This is like you could go to the most prestigious 
Western medical establishments today. Mm-hmm. And when you go into the oncologist department, they probably have a meditation class over they or, at they 4 o'clock. They have a yoga room. They have a yoga room. They have a grief counseling. Mm-hmm. This is an integrative approach to medical healing and to mm-hmm. life itself is now what we do. And mm-hmm. that's exactly what I meant to before. Right. This, this, this view that claims to be the only intelligent one is is so outrageous so, and bogus. So let me give you the chance then to it did have a had had feelings of botnet. I felt like around it was oh, interesting. So it was interesting. But it's hard to also beat because it gets picked up by the and it's not clickbait necessarily. It's, it's a thing. Well, it's lack of journalism ethics and journalism, I'll tell you that much. When you have people who don't bother to check the facts or don't I mean choose to repeat a mischaracterization or take one sentence out of a Although book. Although Donald Trump says that about him. That they well, you know that what? Him. He the whole idea of fake news is not completely inaccurate. Mm-hmm. So let's take an example, a sentence in my book which talks about sickness as an illusion. Mm-hmm. When a metaphysician or a theologian or a scientist for that matter talks about illusion, mm-hmm. Buddha said the world was illusion, Yes, that but is. Buddhists go to the doctor. Mm-hmm. Einstein, Albert Einstein said time and space are illusions of consciousness. But he was a scientist. Mm-hmm. So when someone says within a theological construct that there is a greater world than the, uh, the three dimensions, it's not like we don't get that gravity mm-hmm. is true mm-hmm. or that you don't go to the doctor. There's almost this this suggestion that those of us who believe in a higher power or a more expanded sense of things are less intelligent. Mm -hmm. We don't understand. We're less sophisticated. The opposite is true. When you have a greater sense of the multidimensionality of life itself, it is a more sophisticated Mm -hmm. and a less naive Some tech people think we're in a simulation. So some people don't think that bottle that you just picked up is real, (laughs) that we're in a game, that we're in a simulated game. There are a lot of people in tech that think that. But from the sense of someone, I love Einstein's line, mm-hmm. time and space are an illusion, albeit a persistent one, he mm-hmm. said. I yeah, love that. Yeah, yeah. It is an interesting thing. I had an interview with Elon Musk, and he was talking about the fact that we're all in the game, that it's being played by the a The Matrix. Higher, yeah. And yeah, it's being it, played by a higher order, and Trump is just more of the game, is they're just put that in to see what we do and stuff. It's just, they, they do think that. It's fat, You know, it's really fascinating, because some of them truly believe that's Well, I in. think it's the Shakespearean line, there's more going on here than... <laughs> I don't think you believe it. We're in a simulation, necessarily. Um, so let's talk talk about a few more things before we finish up. You want to stay in until how long, if you decide? I mean, do you, do you imagine some—what would happen to spark this? Just people listening to you, correct? To spark— You getting to, you know, Joe Biden-level numbers. It's so interesting to me. If you look at the Trump phenomenon, mm-hmm. people in the Republican Party didn't take their orders from the RNC. Right, yeah, you said that, yeah. How weird is that? Right. And— I, it's a very difficult field to penetrate. Mm-hmm. If if the word long shot is used before your name, right? Every time somebody reads, and and now, so how do you break through? If you're if well, uh, uh, when people ask me that in New Hampshire or Iowa or South Carolina or Nevada, my response to them is, it's in your hands. Mm-hmm. So either uh, one thing I know, when I have a chance to actually be heard by people, mm-hmm. people go. Oh, you're not who I thought you were. You're not the caricature that I had read. Oh, wow, this changes everything. I have to think about this. As long as I have a chance to get in front of enough people. So you've got to do retail politics. Retail politics. And also it's also much more difficult because I don't have the money Mm -hmm. that the establishment candidates Mm -hmm. have. So the answer is people going to Marianne 2020, Mm -hmm. sending in money. So that I have more opportunity. Oh, look what happened to Bernie Sanders the last thing. Exactly. He was in the and then exactly. Still st- he sticks at a, a low amount, and he feels that he was pushed back in a lot of ways. Um, so so you you feel just by people, you know, there is a time frame. There's a limited time yeah. frame. How do you, what is your strategy for doing that, from just talking or? Um, what I'm doing here today, mm-hmm. all day, every day. Right. Just talking and making the points you want to make. You do the best that you can. And American politics is very unpredictable. Mm-hmm. And you run, ran once before. Right? I ran uh, for Congress. Right. And when I did not succeed at that, although, you know, Ray Dalio says, if you fail, fail well. Mm-hmm. And I liked it. I like to think I failed well. And he was talking about being an entrepreneur. He was talking about if you're going to live a meaningful life. This was in his book, Principles, you know. He said, if you're going to live a meaningful life, there's a, more of a risk you're going to fail. But if you fail, fail well. I, I think the only real failure is what you fail to learn from. Mm-hmm. But when I finished that experience, I certainly did not expect 
to be running for office again. I thought I had scratched that itch. That was that. So now here I am. Mm-hmm. And I feel every day like I'm where I belong. Some days are harder. Some hours are harder. Mm-hmm. It's brutal, and it's also exhilarating. But Martin Luther King said, your life begins to end on the day you stop talking about things that matter. I'm talking about things that I believe matter. I'm talking about traumatized children. I'm talking about waging peace, declaring peace, not just giving in to to the military-industrial complex, which dominates our national security agenda in such a dangerous way. I'm talking about a deep conversation regarding race, uh, regarding racial reconciliation in this country. Uh, Yeah, I'm having a conversation that goes deeper. You know, somebody said to me about the second debate, you were out of your depth. No, I wasn't. Mm-hmm. I'm the only one having, there's no, name one of the campaign that's having this level of depth. Mm-hmm. So, you know, in terms of the conversation that we're going into, the inquiry that we're having. Mm-hmm. So there's value here. Mm-hmm. If the people of the United States want to take it further, that's their business. That's what democracy is. My job is to make sure that to the best of my ability, people know you have this option. You have this option right. of a president who looks at, li- at things this way would make these changes. That's Department what, of Peace, Department of Children, reparations. Uh, reparations, for- uh, a moral economy, mm-hmm. a complete uh, massive infusion of economic hope and opportunity, moral leadership throughout the world. If my, if I'm successful if I can, as to the best of my ability, get as many people in the United States to know this is your option. What they do with it is the will of the people, and that's how it should be. All right. So if you don't prevail, what do you do next? Do you run again for a congressional <gasps> seat, or do you— I, I can't even imagine that. You can't, I even, can't imagine. even imagine But you want to be long in politics. You think mm, politics— Not necessarily. First of all, even when you talk about a congressional seat, mine is a national conversation. Right. You know? Yeah. Um, I There are many ways to serve— I'll do whatever lies in front of me that feels like the next best right action wherever I am. Okay. Would, uh, would you think that someone would ever put in a Department of Peace besides you? Do you imagine that happening? I don't think any of the—first uh, of all, I have a lot of respect for the other candidates, so mm-hmm. this is do not— Do you have a to, favorite of them besides you? Uh, on a very, every day, my favorite <laughs> seems right to now be it's different. Today. There, there's it? a small group of them, but, you know, I, I'm a fan of— I'm a fan of the vast majority of them as people, mm-hmm. and I'm a fan of a, f- a few of them. Uh, Which ones? In terms of, I don't want to go there because okay. I, I don't want to go there. But um, but you feel good about the group as a group. At, I at do. least there's one of them. And right. I feel confident that once this nominee is chosen, we're a team. I've, mm-hmm. I've, I feel very confident about that, actually. There's a good, a good feeling there for um, in my experience so far. So you're not in the debates this week. No, How although you- I will be doing my own live stream Mm-hmm. Uh, input right afterwards at Marianne right. 2020. Right. And then are you—how how do you get in the other debates? I'm so confused by the technicalities. Uh, well, you're confused because it's opaque, mm-hmm. and that's not a good thing, but it is what it is. You got—wait, what one part— I got the 130,000 unique donors, Right, but I didn't make 2% in four— DNC-designated polls. But they didn't release all the polls either. Right. So You got close. You're a lot higher than some... Yeah. You're higher than the but, governor of Montana. I think you're higher than... But I have to get in four polls to get into the October debate. And going back to what you were saying before, they've already created the impression with the fact that they're, leaving they're the going to be 10 on the stage for three hours. What even do if we you need? Get in, even if you get in on the 4th, it, I'm sure I'd be stuck over on the side like mm-hmm. I was before, ask fewer questions like before. Mm-hmm. So I, I, I see the DNC debate says, are you allowed to move? Wouldn't you want to just—I'd move. I just— Well, I did at one point say—I <laughs> yeah. remember one say, I hope you're going to get back to me. Yeah, yeah, I yeah. mean, it was— it's, You might physically move over next to Biden. <laughs> no, that was the move that— Trump Remember when that. Trump did yeah. to Hillary. I, I that was violence that. against women right there. That was, you know, I talked to her about that when I had an interview with her, and I said, why didn't you turn around and say, back off, like that kind of thing? And she said, because I, I calculated, if I said that, people would think I'm a raging jackass. You know what I mean? She talked about that in her book. Yeah, yeah. yeah. She probably should have turned around. It was, it was an interesting problem for her because people had a perception of her as being... Well, nobody had ever seen anything like him before. Right. So they were... They didn't know how to deal with 
something like this. This phenomenon had not existed before. And what she said in the book was, I should have turned around and said, back off, you creep. Mm -hmm. I don't think that would have been my strategy. It would have been, excuse me, excuse me, sir, could I have the the space between us that's that's more courteous, please? Mm -hmm. Here, sorry. Really? I would have said, back (laughs) off, you creep. Back off, you creep. She, as a woman, angry woman. Yeah. No, I get it. But I just, it was so creepy that it was, it crossed the line of creepy. But how could women, after seeing that, have voted for him. A lot of them did. A lot of them did. Okay, last question. Um, you, you're going out to San Francisco next week. If you had to run a tech company, if you, if you had to run a Google, what would, what changes would you make within these companies? You know, you're visiting all the Silicon Valley tech lords, and they become icons. What is their responsibility, and what is their ethics to this country? Given they have become gods in them themselves, they certainly run mass. I feel about tech. Giants is like I feel about any other corporate giants. How much is enough, guys? How many more? How much is enough? At what point does your democracy matter more? Mm-hmm. The state of your country matter more? The state of the planet matter more? And I don't say that as though none of them are having that conversation. Because uh, I know, and you know, enough of them are having that conversation. At this point, though, we need some courage. So what would you do? Like, I always say, tell them you're so poor, all you have is money. Um, which I think works really well with them. It makes them feel like, you know, that's all they've got. But what what would you do for well, these companies? Well, as, as president of the United States, you know, uh, there's a limit, even though what right. you and I were talking before right. uh, about anti-monopoly, that's one right. thing. What would you do if you were head of Google? You were head of Facebook? You were head of Twitter? Uh, there is so much more that they could do in terms what of What would knowing- you do? You were running Twitter. I would be far more vigilant. I would be far more vigilant about where some of this stuff is coming from, especially now that we absolutely know what the Russians did. Mm -hmm. And my my fear is that they knew a lot more than they've been copying to, Mm -hmm. um, even before. Totally. I mean, you know, and very slow, you know, that uh, we would realize that our democracy is on the line here. And you would do? Well, I You're head of Twitter right now. What's the first thing you do? Well, I think that they can block accounts that they absolutely know are there for nefarious purposes that are paid for and run by foreign entities that do not wish us well, who are trying to sow chaos. They, they, they have so much more ability to know that, to track that, and to stop that than, than they are exercising. Would that you throw Donald belief. Trump off of Twitter? He's violated the rules many times. That's an interesting question. Uh, I believe that I would hold any American to account who violates the rules. Uh, shutting down his account, um, I, I, you know, I, I don't want to. The last thing I <laughs> want is want for there to be it. some headline hearing waves and things that, uh, <laughs> yeah. you, you know, I don't. That's okay. I won't go there. But I would. He broke the rules. He breaks the rules almost persistently. But you know, where would he go? Nowhere. There's nowhere to go. You can't do the things he's doing on Facebook. You can't do them anywhere else. What does Twitter say in response to that He's argument? a newsworthy person. He, they probably wouldn't kick you off necessarily. You're a newsworthy person. You're news, he's particularly new, that he's a newsworthy person, and we need to listen to him, whatever he says on our platform. They can't uh, block particular uh, comments that, that cross a line? Couldn't they do that without shutting down his account? Just blocking comments that, that cross the line? The, that starts. They, it's too. Con- they don't want to touch it unless he calls for the death of someone like directly. I don't think they would. Well, do he that. hasn't called for the death of someone, but he has done damage via he that has platform. Done damage. That damage. All right, Marianne. Thank you so much. Thank I you wish so you much. good luck. I um, appreciate it. I and you're staying in this for. When do you decide? Do you know, or do you? Well, what, what would be the moment where you go no? When you feel like you just want to keep getting these messages out and hope that it catches fire. Or know that it catches fire. I want to hold open the possibility that I become president of the United States. I think that if you are running for president, the only way you can do so in integrity with yourself Mm -hmm. and integrity with your supporters and particularly financial supporters is to go for it without equivocation. And I also believe that when you are running for president, people are seeing not only what your policies are, but what kind of person you are. Mm -hmm. And what kind of president lets something like a DNC debate stop her? Mm Mm-hmm. Fair point. Fair point. And thank you so much for coming. One of my goals through having people like you and Andrew, and Andrew Yang and stuff like that is the the characterizations, I think, are a little off. And I think it's important that everybody gets to, as you said, thank you. just gets to hear you guys. Anyway, thank you so thank much. Thank you so Mary. much. 
Thank you, Marianne, for coming on the show. You can follow me on Twitter at Kara Swisher. My executive producer, Erica Anderson, is at Erica America. My producer, Eric Johnson, is at Hey Hey ESJ. You can find full coverage of the 2020 presidential election and where all the candidates stand on the issues at vox.com slash 2020 policy. And make sure to check out our other podcasts, Recode Media, Pivot, and Land of the Giants. Just search for them in your podcasting app of choice. Thanks also to our editor, Joel Robbie. Thank you for listening to this episode of Recode Decode. I'll be back here on Monday. Tune in then. <laughs>